Welcome to Authors on Tour Live, a weekly podcast for people who love to hear about books from the authors themselves. My name is Darren Fote, and today we are podcasting live from the Tattered Cover Bookstore, one of the premier independent bookstores in the nation, with three locations in the metro Denver area. You can visit www.authorsontourlive.com for a complete list of upcoming podcasts. Wait a minute, it's time to begin. We are honored to have Bonnie Jo Campbell here tonight. She is a multiple award-winning author, and her book, American Salvage, was a finalist for both the National Book Award and the National Book Critics Circle Award. And she is here tonight to discuss and sign her new book, Mothers Tell Your Daughters. Please give a warm welcome to Bonnie Jo Campbell. All right. And you know what's super cool is there's like dudes in the audience. Hey, there's two, there's a dude that I was just in my class not long ago in Michigan. Jeez. I've made it my secret goal in life to write uh, stories about women that men wanted to read. And so this is so awesome. My last book, I did it by making sure they put a boat on the cover of the book. <laughs> The people in northern Michigan told me, they're like, we can sell anything if you've got river on the title and a boat on the cover of the book. We can sell that to everybody. So I felt like I had figured something out. And this one's pretty good because it's got a truck on the cover. And, uh, and actually, you guys know if you've seen this cover what's going on in this picture. Dad's in the bar and the kid is sitting out in the parking lot in the truck. You know, it's pretty clear. And uh, I was remembering that we actually owned a truck that was just like this. And I have it, my mechanic friends, and I decided this was a, it's between 19, I think 1971 and 1975 um, Ford truck. Am I right? Is it a Ford? And the reason we know is because that handle is broken. Because it always, like, it got stuck in the up position. And, like, the people in New York who design these covers don't know it. But, actually, this handle is broken. And she can't, she has to, like, get, in order to get in the truck, you have to reach in side through the window to get in. So, I was really, really happy with this. So, she looks like a girl from the neighborhood. So, I was very happy with this cover. So it is so super awesome to be here, and uh, I am going to read um, some. Pe- I'm going to read two very short pieces from the book. I'm a believer in uh, experimenting with this these super short pieces of fiction. Sometimes they call them flat. How many people here are writers? There's some writers here. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. So you know, uh, we call it flash fiction or short shorts, and uh, I think they're really fun to write uh, because you're you're. You're challenged to fit, you know, a whole world. Every story contains a whole world in it, and you're challenged to choose a whole, get a whole world into like one page. So I'm going to read two stories that are real short, and then I'm going to read some from the title story. And then because there's a lot of guys here, I'm going to read a little bit from a story that's about a baby shower, because I think you guys might not have been forced to go to one. So, and I'll have you know, I'm I'm wearing, my grandmother came from Montana, and she died and left me this 
little neckerchief made of gold. So I'm, I've not worn it in public. So I'm trying it for the first time. A ne- Doesn't that sound like a fairy tale? The neckerchief of gold. So I think it's probably shinier than. What's that? Is it a good book title? Yeah, yeah. So, um, and I got to remember that I brought this one in, so not leave it. I usually either steal a book or leave mine behind in equal measure. Um, the first story in the collection is one of these short shorts, and it is called Sleepover. <clears throat> and I apologize for my voice. I think I'm just going to have this voice now. This like, do I sound a little smoky like I've been at the bar? Yeah. I think I'm just going to have this voice now, and and I think because it works for Lucinda Williams and Tom Waits, and uh, I, th- I think I'm just going to go with it. In the old days, they used to try to give you surgery and cut out the nodules or something, but I don't smoke. I haven't smoked for years, but I, I think I'm just going to have a smoker's voice. So this is called Sleepover, and they're making me talk in it. Normally, I might actually... See if this holds out. I don't like standing behind a podium. Do you guys watch Futurama? They have all those all those heads in jars. And I always feel like when I'm behind one of these things, I'm like a head in a jar. And they also make really short women stand behind them, and they really look like heads in jars. So I'll probably regret that I just took that out of there, but we'll try. Okay, it's called Sleepover. Ed and I were making out by candlelight on the couch. Pammy was in my bedroom with Ed's brother. She wanted to be in the dark because her face was broke out. We were wishing your head could be on Pammy's body, Ed said. You two together would make the perfect girl. I took it as a compliment. Unlike Pammy, I was flat-chested. Ed kissed my mouth, my throat, my collarbone. He pressed his pelvis into mine. The full moon over the driveway reminded me of a single headlamp or a giant eyeball. Ed's tongue was in my ear when Mom's car lights hit the picture window. Ed slid to the floor and whistled for his brother, who crawled from the bedroom on hands and knees. They scurried out the screen door into the backyard and hopped the fence. Pammy and I fixed our clothes and hurriedly dealt a hand of Michigan rummy by candlelight. You girls are going to ruin your eyes, Mom said, switching on the table lamp. When Mom went to change her clothes, Pammy whispered that she'd let Ed's brother go into her pants. Her hair was messed up, so I smoothed it behind her ear. Too bad this show isn't in color, Pammy said later when we were watching Frankenstein. While the doctor was still cobbling together body parts, Pammy fell asleep with her small, pretty feet on my lap. I stayed awake, though, and saw the men from the town band together to kill the monster. What are you doing out here all so far away? You live out here? Awesome, awesome. Yeah. 
I know. I should have got out here early. You saw Chris is here. Chris Kalisa is here. She's hiding out there. All right. Graduated in the class of 1980 from a tiny high school in Michigan. Um, this is another very short story, um, but this, you might decide, you writers out here, you might tell me afterwards, come up and tell me, that actually wasn't a story, that's a prose poem. And I'm sort of interested in the difference between them. Let me say the reason I think the writers, fiction writers need to write really short stories is because you go to the important events, like the inauguration of a president, they always drag up some poet. You know, what do they got to say that we fiction writers don't have? They got brevity, okay? So I'm all for, like, coming up with some stuff, because I want when the next president, when Hillary is elected, I want her to call up not the poet laureate, but the fiction laureate. So um, if you guys listen to too much NPR like I do, you know, uh, they tell you all the time that people are, don't have to be in pain because we have all this palliative care, right? They can handle all these situations, even at the same time that I think they're limiting the use of painkillers. Um, they're always telling you they have pain under control. But I think everybody in this room probably knows somebody whose pain is not under control. And it's really a hardship for that person who's in pain. And it's also a hardship for everyone that person knows. And uh, I... it. One thing about fiction writing is if you have a if you have a problem that you can solve, you don't write a story, you just solve the problem, right? But if you have a problem then you that you can't solve, then that is something that you can write about, you know. So this is a story called My Sister is in Pain. Unbearable pain when she gets up in the morning to go to work. Pain when she goes to bed at night. When she sleeps, she sleeps in pain and wakes up again in pain and dresses in her stretch waist pants and bright, complicated sweaters. She heats up meals from packages. She substitutes low-fat margarine for butter, sucralose for sugar, and smokes cigarettes in pain on her porch while squirrels scramble like idiots up trees and cars without mufflers vomit smoke and they clatter through this neighborhood of potholes and broken windows where kids steal anything to sell for money to buy meth. Her doctors shrug in their lab coats. They send her to specialists who throw up their arms. Pain like airplanes with their airplane engine noise flying over and messing up the sky. Pain like dishes in the sink. Not just her own dishes, but dishes of strangers who've left them there for days in cold gray water. She is our mother's daughter, but we don't know who she is or what her pain could mean. Her cicadas of pain on summer nights, the jolts in her spine like flashes of red-hot fireflies, pain that radiates from her intestines. 
like the shocks of electric eels, stabbing pain 60 hours a week as she bathes and medicates and feeds and tends to the needs and to the pain of others for minimum wage, throbbing pain when she finally has a day off. She was born more beautiful than the rest of us, and she crawled, She called out more loudly from her crib. She cried in her bed, and, she, and outside in the woods she wailed. She never, ta- she never said what those boys did to her beside the creek. Imagine a long corridor with hundreds of rooms all closed against pain. She walks down the corridor and her pain does not diminish. Whether or not she stops and knocks on any door, whether or not anyone invites her in for a cool drink, whether or not one of the people who invites her in for a cool drink is myself, still her pain does not diminish. We rarely call her, are polite at Christmas. We give tentative embraces. We compliment her sweaters, her beads, her hair bows. We nod when she explains about her special shoes, her copperware as seen on TV. The gifts she brings us are elaborately wrapped. We untie the ribbons in terror. Because you know what it ends up like that pain you don't know what to do about it because it's somebody else's to begin with and it's really bad and you don't know what to do and you end up avoiding the person that's what you end up doing so just this thing here holding in my face if you guys want to interrupt me with questions I'll answer them I'm going to read a I'm going to read something I'm going to read the little piece that I'm going to torture you dudes with because you haven't had to go to bed to, to baby showers have you? Do they make guys go to baby showers now? They do. Okay. Did he? Did he go? Did he do the thing with like, um, I don't know, games? Shooting babies at a target. That's good. Wow. That's like. I mean, that's kind of like getting impregnated. I mean, that's because just shooting a lot at a, one target. That's like a guy's game. Wow, they were he's lucky. Well, I'm just going to read a little a paragraph of this and then I'm going to read from the title story. Okay. And I was thinking, you know when I wrote I wrote this when you write these books, you don't know what they're about, especially a short story collection because you're so busy writing. You're not figuring out what it is what it is you've written, you know, you're just writing like crazy and and I had a deadline and uh I uh I um, realized, I took a look at the book afterwards and I was like figuring out there's all sorts of like sexual violations in here, you know, <laughs> like mild ones and serious ones. And, uh, and, uh, and then I was thinking, there's a couple stories about pregnancy and I was like, that's the big sexual violation. <laughs> I mean, you're just having a drink and having some fun and then the next thing you know you're all knocked up and that's the that's the violation so this story is called natural disasters all right 
And it's kind of what I saw around me were all these all these women who were getting pregnant, and they had been perfectly rational, normal women, and then they all started losing their minds, and they, they were all like trying to make the world safe for their babies. So I'm just going to read a little bit of this, but the, the whole the gist of the story is these women were like going crazy trying to make the world a safe place for what they were creating. So natural disasters. We have already donned our blindfolds to grope in drawstring bags, to have our fingers stuck into the ick of Nutella spread on a disposable diaper. We have sucked lukewarm hot chocolate from baby bottles and have tasted mashed food in little jars without labels. The game is you're supposed to guess what the flavor is, if you guys don't know, okay? We have picked tiny gold safety pins out of rice and lifted cotton balls from a bowl with a spoon. Some have played tinkle in the pot, in which a woman squeezes a quarter between her legs as she walks to the center of the room and then tries to drop it in a jar. Two of the women created a three-foot-high cake out of disposable diapers, and this structure presides over us, like, over us like a creepy, puffy baby powder grandmother. And finally, it is the time in my baby shower when everyone gathers around and watches me open gifts. And then we will eat, and then, only then, will these people go home. My cousin Nancy and her best friend have brought their infant boys, and I am mesmerized and horrified at how casually they handle their darlings. Yesterday, my summer vacation from teaching high school, English, began, and I've been looking forward to focusing more on baby. But a shower was not my idea. My sister Gail, who is a dear pest, and my husband, who is conveniently out of town, have been colluding against my having any time to myself. Both of them have expressed concern at the grim mindset I sometimes slip into. I'm keeping as physically fit as possible, but still, I keep falling into a funk and brooding about the future. I can happily contemplate my baby daughter as a toddling toddler with a silky fountain of hair spraying up from her sweet head. I can imagine her warm little body on my lap as she follows along with her pointer finger when we read the lines of green eggs and ham. I see her as a kindergartner pulling away, on pulling on shiny rain boots with polka dots and then running away from me toward her teacher. What I'm having a rough time with is seeing myself with a tiny, helpless baby. If you, were pre if you weren't pregnant, Barb, I'd get you back on your antidepressants lickety-split, Gail said this morning. When she got here and found me wearing black, she marched me into my room and found a purple sweater for me to put on with my jeans. Ever since the tinkle in the jar game, I've had to pee... And so I struggle from my seat and down the hall. I strain my Achilles tendon last time I did prenatal yoga. The teacher keeps reminding me a yoga class is not a competition. Um, when I get back, the women are telling stories. When I was in labor for Luke, 
I begged the nurse to kill me. My cousin Nancy says, glancing down at the boy, flopped across her lap. I grabbed her pen and tried to stab myself in the chest with it. So they insisted on an epidural. Yeah, I was in labor for 26 hours with my first, says my best friend from high school. We haven't kept in touch, but it's nice to see her freckled face again. She has three children, all apparently healthy and happy, and she seems not to have lost her mind at all. They wanted to do a C-section, but I said, hell no. After all this, I'm pushing this bastard out myself. I don't fear giving birth. I'll make it through that exercise just fine as I've made it through more than a dozen marathons and a couple of triathlons. As I got through earning my master's degree in one year while teaching full time, I've been out winter camping in below zero weather with my husband and together we've hiked up mountains with heavy packs in hundred degree heat. My body will come through for me, and I have little doubt that I will give birth to something like a perfect child. That's not the problem. Also, I have enjoyed being pregnant, have enjoyed doors being open for me, seats being found in restaurants, my husband cooking all manner of weekend breakfasts tailored to my tastes. For months, other women have ignored the frown I'm told I perpetually wear. And they've smiled at me anyway. Being pregnant has not been a problem, for I know baby is safe so long as she is inside me. A siren sounds just as I am returning to my chair, and I fall heavily onto the cushion in such a clumsy, comical way that the women around me laugh. It's just a test, my sister says, speaking loudly and authoritatively enough that we can hear her over the siren, which emanates from a fire station a quarter mile away. They test the sirens on the first Saturday of every month, I say. This is the third Saturday, as the mournful sound echoes inside me. And it's three o'clock. The test siren is always at one. Somebody looks up the weather on a smartphone. My sister tried to make everyone put them away during the party and finds that a tornado was sighted just 16 miles north of here. My heart pounds as I study the hallway through which the tornado's winds will tear. Books about composition theory and French philosophy and even the Nancy Drew mysteries I've saved since childhood are missiles poised to fire. That floor-to-ceiling bookshelf I built last year is all edges, sharp corners, and metal screws. I must remember to ask David to bolt it more sturdily to the wall studs before baby is born. And perhaps we can secure each shelf of books with a bungee cord across the front. The bedroom door is closed, but atop my dresser are old Kappa Delta Phi Honor Society pins, hair ties and barrettes, race medals, lapis lazuli earrings that hang down to my shoulders, corks from wine I drank in France. Any of these could blow down in a tornado's winds and slither toward baby's throat to stab or choke her. On my husband's dresser are shoelaces, tie clips, cufflinks, and more medals. He has thus far not imagined that his lifestyle poses any danger to the baby. We all move to the basement, negotiate the steep stairs with the wrapped packages. I sit on the only comfy chair while others sit on cushions they've dragged down. My sister perches beside me on her knees on the rug. I wish I had a bomb shelter, I say. 
or one of those survivalist pods. Everyone except my sister laughs, but I'm trying to recall whether the siren cutting out means the danger has passed or if it means the fools at the firehouse think we've been given warning enough. Okay, I'm going to stop there, but it gets worse. (laughs) She goes on to figure out, I'll just give away the punchline. She figures out that the only way that babies can be safe is if we can get rid of gravity. Because that is the thing that is hurting babies when they fall down. So, Okay, I'm going to read a little bit from the title story, which is a grim bit of business. Um, I, it's an impossible story. I never should have attempted it. Um, you know, the minute I think I shouldn't do something, I do it. I, I've hitchhiked all over the country because, like, the minute I thought... It terrifies me, the thought of hitchhiking. I took off. I was 17. And I was like, I can never travel. I'm too poor. I come from a poor family. I can never travel. And it was like, but because hitchhiking is too dangerous. And I immediately hitchhiked all over the United States. So now I thought, I want to write this story. The woman has, uh, she's end stage cancer. And she just had a stroke, so she can't talk or write. So I want to write a monologue in her side of her head to her daughter. So uh, that's what, how this started. Okay, I'm just going to read a piece of this, Mothers Tell Your Daughters, and I hope you guys have some questions. I've primed one person in the group to ask a question. She tried to ask me at dinner when we were having wine. I'm like, I'm not answering any questions now. Later, we will answer them. Okay. So this is Mothers Tell Your Daughters. I'm going to read uh, just a little bit at the front, and then I'm going to go inside the story and uh, wrap it up. Uh, mothers tell your daughters used to be a doctor would wrap a woman up tight to hold body and soul together but when I fell last week trying to get to the kitchen to pour myself a drink they just untangled my tubes picked me up like I was a child and put me back in this awful bed told me I'd had a stroke now I'm lying here with a broken rib that aches Stop going through my cupboards and drawers and envelopes that are none of your damn business and sit down and hear me out, sis. Being unable to say a word means my mind is about to burst. And since I can't even hold a goddamn pen, I'm counting on you, my flesh and blood, to somehow read my thoughts. They say if they wrap my broken ribs, I'll get pneumonia. But I never got pneumonia before they stuck me in this hospice bed. In the old days, they fussed about a punctured lung. Maybe, But maybe a busted rib hasn't bu- punctured a lung in this county since 1932 when old Mr. Wickman's pony trampled him and sent him to an early grave. As soon as I was big enough to climb onto my daddy's bay mare, I used to pull blue jeans on under my skirts and ride all over the township. One day at a crossroads, that mare took a sharp turn and I continued straight on. That was all it took to break a rib in them days. A jackass kicked me when I was pregnant with you, sis. Cracked another couple ribs. Maybe that's why you were born distrusting and watchful. Always waiting on things to fall apart. At nine pounds, 14 ounces, just the size of you could have busted me up from the inside. 
Okay, and I'm going to read from... So that's her. She's talking to her daughter. And it turns out she had a lot to say to her daughter that she had not... She realized she had not said while she could actually talk. So, and this is a woman... This is, this is a woman who has a certain relationship with men here. You'll see her. Uh, and the little part you might that was in the middle, her daughter, she's a farm woman. She's an old farm woman, and her husband has left left her alone, alone to raise a bunch of kids. And uh, in this, and her daughter has become a women's studies major. So, and this is a mother who didn't even know there was a thing such as women's studies. You know, what would that be? So. All the men added together made the solid world. They were the marbles in the jar, and women were whatever sand and water claimed the space left between them. That's how I saw things as a young woman. That was my women's studies. (laughs) Now I've come to know that women are like vodka poured over men who melt away like ice cubes. It was a man who broke my nose, Bennett, like it is now. I let you kids think that big paint gelding had kicked me again. Patchy Pete was that horse's name, black and white like a Holstein cow. I bought him for $200 and ended up selling him for 200 after a year of getting kicked and bitten and thrown. I would have dressed him out for dog food or fed him to you kids if he hadn't been so gorgeous. But a good-looking horse, like a good-looking man, can always find a place in somebody's stable. (laughs) Men climbed into my bed after they fenced my pasture, after they messed with the furnace and changed the oil in my Chevy truck and my Ford tractor. They climbed into my bed after their wives threw them out. We needed their help. There was so much work to do around here, and mostly they were nice. I'm still alive, if barely, and a lot of angry wives are long dead, including Bill Theroux's wife, who wore herself out bitching about me, if you want to know the truth of it. (laughs) When I was a teenager, my friend Julia said one day, we got to look pretty. I shaved my legs for the first time, and it took a long while to stop bleeding. Us and two other friends got hold of a six-pack, though we didn't like the taste of beer. We carried the bottles to where some men lived and reclined on their couch, ankles crossed. We didn't know how to talk to men, so we just smiled and silence hung above the bag of pretzels they brought out until the men started to laugh, until we laughed with them. They were older and muscular and smelled of smoke and solvents from the repair shops where they worked. One man had a glass eye, said he'd been shot. When he popped it out, we were all possessed by a powerful desire to hold the blind thing (laughs) in our hands. Julia touched it first and passed it around. She got pregnant right away. And the rest of us followed. And for a lot of years, we raised our children, fed our husbands, worked hard at low-paying jobs or at jobs that didn't pay at all, and, and learned just how tired a body could be. Those men took me by surprise. But I never looked back. I never stopped singing love songs. I never longed for a time before men. 
Men's machines still sing to me. Revving chainsaw, motorboat, log splitter, rototiller, leaf blower, generator humming, cordless drill, rattle trap tractor, power washer, hedge trimmer, biting grinder, motorcycles with mufflers torn off, diesel trucks chugging in the driveway. You remember those men who came to me after a fishing trip up north and filled my ringer washer with smelt? Come out with us and play, men used to call like tomcats, and I went out. That old ringer washer was never the same after all them fish. The men who came around never passed up an easy target, so they killed all the rabbits. I meant to sew a blanket from the soft skins to replace my own skin which I imagined wadded up under the bed in my room, smeared with menstrual blood, stiff with sperm, stretched by pregnancy. For years I'd warmed myself in the borrowed skins of men. I was good at cutting pelts from flesh, muscle from bone. After partying all night, a passed-out man might resemble a great cut of meat in my bed or on the couch or floor, leathery bronze shoulders and a fish white behind. Men inhaled great swaths of oxygen, exhaled smoke and sweat, so sometimes I could scarcely catch my breath. I remember finding you and your brothers fishing through a man's wallet like grubby elves. Shoo, shoo, I said, and the men slept on. After your daddy left, I tried to raise you to know men and not to fear them so you wouldn't be taken by surprise. I figured that if any of them bothered you, you would have made a fuss. The way you made a fuss when I wanted you to get out of bed early and haul buckets of water from the creek. When the pipes froze, of course you were scared of your daddy. He was a fearsome man and he scared me too. But you could have whined and glared at them other men the way you did at your poor worn-out ma who tried to feed and clothe you with no money. How was I supposed to know there was trouble with the way they pulled you onto their laps? If you never told me, you didn't like it. It seemed like you were having fun when they said how pretty you were. You never said, you were never the kind of kid who smiled, so I couldn't tell. Thanks. So I wondered if you guys had any questions. I have one other shorty short I could read if you really want me to, but I thought you might want to ask some questions or something. All right. There's a question here. Excellent. So your characters are so vivid. How do you come up with them? Well, in my short stories, the weird thing is it's different in the novels than the short stories. So I'll say in the short stories, I always start from real life. And there's a reason for that. I'm I'm not one of those people who can just, like, give me a prompt and I'll sit down and write a story. I'm one of those people who only writes about something I care desperately about. And so I, only, I write about situations that are sort of conjured up by real life. And it's usually some person in a tough situation that just gets me thinking and gets me worrying, keeps me up at night. And then what happens is I get enough going on, enough heat built up around the idea that then 
I start writing a story. So it starts from real life, but what I end up doing then is changing the character to fit a more kind of a hotter situation. You know, the situation in fiction, real life, we're listen, we're willing to go along with any old story, but in fiction, you want it, you just want things to be more intense. And especially in short stories, you want everything to be as intense as possible without seeming fake or melodramatic. So I usually change the character enough that by the end, and so then I change the situation. So I'm like, oh, this character, it would fit better if this character was a twin because it would make sense if she had another, a twin sister who this was happening to. But then it turns out I got to change the situation to make that a little hotter, you know, to make that a little hotter. So, so I changed the character enough and I usually, I usually find a way to share the story with the person who inspired the character and they usually don't recognize themselves. So, yeah. One time in, uh, in my book, American Salvage, one dude who was who was the inspiration for a story. I was a little worried because I thought this feels this is a little close to the real life character, and so I shared it with him. And w- instead of saying that's about me, God damn it, what he said was, "I had no idea you understood the situation I was in. I had no idea you understood the the hell I was going through." So I failed to change that character. But I did okay because I treated the character fairly enough that the very person who inspired the character was okay with it. But it is dicey, and I have to say, um, I, I do, I do tell myself that if somebody asks somebody in that situation asks me not to publish a story, I do think people are more important than stories, at least until they're dead. In which case, they can say nothing about it. But for now, I think I would resist publishing a story if it was too close. But the story, and it's weird, the story, so for my short stories, the characters come from real life. It turns out when I write a novel, novels take so much architecture. They take so much, like it takes so much to create a novel, the shape of that thing, that it turns out I, I have to invent a lot more. So I think my novels feel very different than my short stories. The novels have a lot more invention in them. So it's, a, it's an odd thing. It's sort of, it's something that I didn't know from the beginning, and I didn't realize until, like, my fourth book that that was happening. Yeah, so here's the rule. The writer doesn't really know. So you guys, readers get to own the story as much as writers do, I think. Because once you read it, it's yours. Yeah. Yeah, any other questions? Mm-hmm. Um, so, this contains first person, second person. And third person. Uh, how do you approach that? Do you start writing the story and the point of view comes to you, or do you generally know your point of view? Yeah, and even you non-writers know about the point of view, if it's first person, if it's an I story, if it's a, or if it's a she story. What you hope, you know, the truth is, if you had to make all the decisions, you couldn't write a story because there's so many decisions to make. So you hope, you always hope that that point of view, whatever you kind of start out in, you hope that's the right one. But it isn't always. So what you do is you, I mean, what I do is I write whatever occurs to me first, I write in that point of view. And then I do sometimes change it. There's a, the story in here, Playhouse, which is the first full-length story. That actually, I think that actually went back and forth like three times. 
I just couldn't get that story right. It is a story of, I was interested in these, you heard about all these awful stories where some, some girl thought she had a great time at a party <laughs> and then saw the, vi- saw the phone videos the next day and was like, oh, you know, that happened. And, uh, you know, w- young women have been molested and didn't even know it and, uh, or were involved in things they didn't know they consented to. So that's one story that, that covers that material. And that was a hard one to write because the whole notion of like what you know, to me, the worst thing is to not know. I mean, if I'm going to be involved in something shady, I want to be part of it. I want to be involved and know about it. But, uh, you know, in, in that situation, mostly the women don't know. So it was uh, interesting to try to puzzle out, is it, can I do this as an intimate first person, even though she doesn't remember what happened to her? So so I ended up going back and forth a few times and ended up in first person. Um, my default, and I think a lot of writers have a default, and my default is third person, so a she story, and past tense. So that's my default. And so I think most writers will sort of fall into one default, have, you know, either present tense or past, and then have either first person or third person. But hopefully we we recognize at a certain point that something's going, if, if something's not right about the story, we have the freedom to change to change that. And it's fun because when a story really works, the reader almost isn't even aware whether it's first person or third person. When a story's really rocking. Mm-hmm. Have you always been a writer? I was a circus performer and a mathematician. And, well, I, I make a joke because I've done a lot of things. I did travel with the circus for a while, just for a little while. But I was, I was a snow cone salesman because look at this big muscles I got. I used to carry those trays, uh, those trays of snow cones up and down the stairs. And uh, I um, also was going to, I was in a Ph.D. program for mathematics and I was going to become a mathematician, and I was—I used to run bicycle tours. I really tried not to write, and I'll tell you. And you all who write know know why, because it's very—it's com- very competitive writing. I hate competition. Like when I, even when I was in high school, all the all the chicks love some dude. Like you can have him. I I can't compete. I don't even want. I love sports, but I could never be in them because it was all this competition. I just want to go out and just run around that track. Just keep running. Who cares who's next to me, whatever. But no, it was always a competition with that track coach, you know. Uh, I just wanted to throw that discus, that feeling of throwing that discus. Uh, But... uh, so I, I avoided writing. I tried not to write. Every, I kept coming up with new careers that were not writing, and then I would just start writing again. So I fought, fought the writing thing. So, but finally I gave in when I was about 37 or something. I finally gave in and took a writing class. And you know what? I hadn't realized. I thought you had to be brilliant to write. I know. Well, you don't know as a kid. They're always like, oh, you're so talented. And then it's like, if you don't feel talented, then what do you do if you're not talented? And I think we do a big disservice. Don't even tell kids they're talented. You know, just tell them to work hard. Say, hey, how do you like this? Do you like this? Good. Keep doing it and keep working hard. Don't tell people they're talented because then when you don't feel talented, you don't know what to do. And uh, so so I... um. I, I was okay at writing, but I knew I wasn't very good, but I didn't realize you just go take a class and then people help you get better. 
I didn't know. And so finally, I'm 37. I'm an old lady. And it's like, finally. And so that I'm 53 now. And still, like, the main thing is just hard work. It's just hard work. And uh, I think 53, look at Chris. 53 is looking pretty good. I know. Yeah, there. So, okay. So, <laughs> but uh, yeah, thank goodness. Because I, I have one, we have a few family photographs. You know how you, how you treasure those old family photographs of the past generations? Now, you know what? In the new generations, there's too many photos. Nobody's going to give a crap about them. You know what they're going to value? Those three letters you wrote in the last 10 years. That's what's going to be precious because we don't write letters anymore. But like those photos, there's like a photo of my grandmother. Like she's a stout woman in a rocking chair with very gray hair. You know, she was, she was 55 or something. And it's like, this was my grandmother. So... It's a different world. <laughs> so I've been trying to figure out this writing thing. For I'm still working on it. Because the problem is you think you have it figured out, and then you try to write a new story. And it's like, this isn't like the stories I wrote before. I have no idea how to approach this story. It's completely different. <laughs> I do. You know, I sold, I actually, when I sold this book to W.W. Norton, which let me give a little shout out to Norton. Do you guys know they are an employee owned company? Is that not awesome? Yeah. Most publishers are owned by a giant German conglomerate. (laughs) They're mostly owned by like a giant entertainment company or something. And it's like Norton, you go to the, to New York and you go to their offices and they're really crappy. (laughs) You're not podcasting this, right? Okay. Like, like you have these like world famous editors and they're in little cubicles and stuff. And it's like, they must really love it here because it's not glamorous. And uh, so, but I, I sold two books and I was surprised they wanted to do the stories first because the other, the book I'm, I've been trying to write for a real, I'm a really slow writer. I write, I sometimes work on a story for decades. No exaggeration. There's a story in American Salvage I worked on for 24 years without, and I finally figured it out. And I was like, Whew. I mean, I was a young woman when I, I was a young woman just being courted by my husband when that, when I started to work on that, he courted me by revving an old uh, two-stroke motorcycle underneath the window. Of, I lived on the third floor, and he would like, it was like this Kawasaki. It was the dirtiest motorcycle. At, you know these two-stroke engines? And all the guys, they put extra oil in because they're like, just to be safe. You know, put extra oil in. And so it was just this smoky. And I was like, that's when I started that story. And now I've been married for 28 years, and, uh, you know, he, he still makes that smokes with different vehicles and uh and those noises i talked about in that story he's making all those noises but uh but i mean i worked i have students who are less than 24 and i always tell them yeah i had to work on that story longer than you're alive but uh but i've been working for a long time on this math book it's a math novel (laughs) because i want people to love mathematics i want people to love it and so I love mathematics, and so, but getting the right amount of math into a book is a challenge. Like, I'm trying to get the math. Have you guys ever seen uh, people make croissants? Go to your baker. Try to get them to let you watch what they do. They make a perfectly innocent bread dough, and then they melt five pounds of butter, 
And then they force the butter into the dough as much as it will hold. And then they shove it aside and let it rest. Okay. And then later they melt five more pounds of butter and they come back to the dough and they force it into the dough. So that's what I'm trying to do with math in my book (laughs) is I'm trying to force as much math into the novel as I can. And I keep running up against the problem of somebody reads this and then runs screaming for the door because it's got too much math in it. But uh, I'm really interested in mathematics because, you know, I, I don't know if you guys have to grade student papers, but... Man, it is so much easier to grade the math papers. <laughs> you can just see where they went wrong. You know, your, 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 your creative writing, I don't know where the hell it went wrong, you know? <laughs> you know, I don't know. If a story's working, I'm just like, rock on. I don't care if it's a disaster, if it's working. But it's like when the story goes wrong, you're trying to puzzle out, where did this go wrong? And it isn't clear at all. So, so I'm trying to, but I'm working the math, and I, so that's, Maybe that's what's coming next is the math novel. So are you ready for it? Uh, Okay, right. (laughs) We'll put a good, we'll get a good cover on it. (laughs) Yeah, with a truck. I know I've got a boat and a truck. I don't know what else we, a chainsaw. We'll get a chainsaw on it. Yeah, any other? You guys can see I'll tell anything. I actually, uh, I, I tend to tell the, exactly the things I'm not supposed to tell. I can, I can tell you the bad title that it, the book almost had. Can I tell you? It's, it's so fun to talk about. Because the writing is so hard, it's really fun to talk about everything else but the writing. Like how, why the cover looks the way it does and um, how many, like, um, uh, my last book that has, I went through five covers on my last book. They were horrible. And then finally they got the right one. And then like for a story collection, you have to agonize over the title. Cause you don't know what the, actually everything you have to agonize over the title. All my books have been agony over the title. So I hope this is a good one. Mothers tell your daughters. It should sound like it's cautionary tales. You know, there's trouble in them pages. So that's the way I meant it to sound. Oh, I almost forgot. They wanted to call it American Women. See, the groans. See, listen. If if my editor ever reads the podcast, I don't know what they were thinking. American Women. It'd be like that. Sounds like nonfiction. It sounds like we'd be reading about, you know, Mrs. Roosevelt and you know Betty Ford and stuff. (laughs) You know. So, thank goodness. So, I think maybe they just scared me with that title. They're like, we're going to call it American Women. And I was like, so I spent the next month doing nothing but going around. And I did the same thing with American Salvage. I just carried around a notebook. I gave up writing for a month. I just carried around a notebook and and listened for interesting words. <laughs> you know? like. And so, American Salvage was my last collection. And I, I just went around... Listening, and I almost called it something savage, and then suddenly it was like, no, salvage sounds sexier, you know? <laughs> and then my friend Andy's like, well, you can't call it American. That's too nervy, you know? And it's like, you know, because once you're putting a stake out, like you've written the American something, and uh, so I was like, oh, damn. So I had to write a whole new story called 
American Salvage in order to justify using the title. And since then, I've seen all these American books written by dudes, and they're just like grabbing American out and patching it on there. They don't care. American Rust, you know, American, all this stuff. But I was like, but it was good. It was good for me because I, I had to write this story in a hurry. It was a good exercise. It's a good story about a tow truck driver. Yeah, exactly. It's so true. It's American everything. But the great thing about writing the title story is it gave me a license to go hang out at a junkyard and hang out with this tow truck driver who was who had meant who had been hit in the head really hard and wasn't the same man he used to be. And uh, so it was actually good all around because I spent like three months at the junkyard. I advise it. You just, it's so, like, it puts everything in perspective, spending a lot of time at the junkyard. And I drove around in the tow truck with him. It was super fun. It was super fun. He doesn't have a big vocabulary. He had a small vocabulary even before the terrible accident. (laughs) And then there was the terrible accident, which I wrote about, and then his vocabulary got really small. Yeah, I know. It was sad. It was. I mean, it's, we should we shouldn't laugh. Although he has a great sense of humor, and I didn't know if he understood what I was doing writing a story about him. And then, and then I I always jog past his junkyard even now. And I I jog by on uh, I jog. I thought he might be mad that I wrote a story. I didn't know. I couldn't tell. And uh, and because his vocabulary is so small. And uh, and I I couldn't tell. So I was like jogging by his junkyard one day, and he drove out after me in his truck. And, uh, and I, and it was Valentine's day and he drove after me in his truck and he like shoved out the window at me, this giant box of candies, this big old heart shaped box of candies. And it's funny cause I'm jogging, right? <laughs> I don't have a big pocket to put, you know, the hundred piece thing. So it was like, I had to jog all the way home with this like giant box of candy, <laughs> I thought it was so sweet, though. It was really sweet. So. Don York is his name, so I'll tell you that. I changed it in the story, but if you want to come to Kalamazoo, I'll introduce you to him. <laughs> you probably know Don York. Do you know Don York? You might, yeah. <laughs> he didn't give you any candy, though, did he? Only I got the candy. <laughs> All right, any other questions? I'll, I'll tell you the scoop. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the reviews have branded the collection as um, pro-female empowerment and feminist, and honestly, this made me kind of reticent to pick it up. Me too. <laughs> God, who are these people? I know. I had some guy like call me up, and he's like, I don't know if I should be reading this book. It was a reviewer. I'm like, yo, dude, all the chicks in this book love the dudes. I mean, don't they? I mean, they love the guys. And, you know, I, I sort of I sort of resent this sort of like, oh, women are victims. I wouldn't write about a woman victim for the life of me. I mean, they get victim women get victimized. Men do too sometimes, women more often. But you know what? We're all in this together. You know, men and women, we are in this together and we got to puzzle it out together. And so even if there's like tough material and all you guys, all the guys know, not all guys behave so well, you know, as you people in this room who are fabulous and, (laughs) but it's like to, I know I don't like that attitude. You know, it's the same, it's the same thing. And they'll, they'll often like 
focus on the focus on that aspect of it, like women being victimized. And you know, and that that's not the point. You know, you could have written a you could look at Huck Finn as the story of a victim. Huck Finn's parents beat him and then abandon him. You know, Huck Finn is a poor kid, totally abused. But you don't look at Huck Finn that way. Huck Finn, you know what you're looking at? What's Huck going to do next? And, you know, for some reason with women, it's easy to get into this funk of, like, seeing the women as victims. But my women are always doing something. You know, they, they're victimized, and, they, and then they're getting up and doing something and trying to figure it out. So I do think it's a little bit of a problem with, with readership. Although, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to embrace anybody who, you know, anybody who wants to pick up the book and see in it. Like I said, once you're the reader, you do kind of own the book, I think, you know, and you can look in the book for what you, what you want and people do read for what they want to see. But, um, I, I just think we're, you know, men and women are in this together and I'm, you know, I'm especially, I mean, the book American Salvage was mostly about men, um, that men were the main characters in most of those stories. And so that's why I was interested in doing a, a book about mostly focusing on the women. But unfortunately, sometimes it has that feeling to it. And I, I think it depends on who the reviewer is, but that seems silly. And also, they always talk about the book being so serious. There's like actually a whole bunch of funny stories in there. But for some reason, people kind of focus on the on the tragedy. And I don't know. Do you guys think that maybe the maybe tragedy, the sense of tragedy is more universal and maybe the sense of comedy is a little more like depends on who the person is because we don't get enough comedy in fiction. I think people in New York just say, oh, well, that comedy, that's for TV or something because I don't think we get all the comic fiction we need and especially we don't get it from women. We're, we get we get only from the writers who are kind of designated comic writers. You know, Carl Hyacin is allowed to do it, but uh, not not a lot of others. So I don't know where that comes from. It's a good, it's a big mystery, and reviews are such a mystery anyway, aren't they? You know, reviews of books. I, I guess what they do is you just you take them with a grain of salt, but they might help you figure out whether you you even wanted to take a look at the book. I guess, you know. So somebody else had a question. Mm-hmm. Rainy, stormy. <laughs> well, it's funny because uh, I normally write like three hours a day. That and and you guys, no matter what anybody tells you, they mostly just write three hours a day. <laughs> no matter what they say, those people who say I write all day go in their office. They're reading the New Yorker in there. They're not writing three hours. The world doesn't let you write three hours a day. You remember that woman who wrote Seabiscuit? It was all, had the, what's the disease, the tired disease, exhausted disease, chronic fatigue. And she's like giving this interview and she's like, I was so tired. I could barely get up and I was so tired during the writing of this, you know, I could only write three hours a day. And I'm like, sister, we're all there with you. You know, some of us go to work and we can only write three hours a day. You got the disease. You can only write three hours a day. Mostly people write three hours a day, but you got to do it rain or shine. The one weird thing about writing this book, I don't know how I ha- why it happened. I sort of, I know one reason, but I'm a fiction writer, so don't trust anything I say. Cause I'm, I sort of make things sound good or they make, they seem right. And I change my mind later, but, um, this whole book, I wrote it in the kitchen. I have an office. 
I have an office, and if I just keep the wood fire burning, my office is warm. And 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 the cat was really mad because a cat sits on my lap in my office. But in the kitchen, it doesn't really work because I'm like on a high stool. And and so the cat was mad. The husband was on a weird shift. He was working. He works on an assembly line. He was working like four in the morning. And so I wrote this book in the kitchen. And it's very odd. I wonder if it's different because of that. Because, like, the whole book was written with, like, dirty dishes behind me. Like, you know, tomatoes I'd canned last year when I had more time, you know, on this counter. And somehow it was all all this mothery stuff in the kitchen with me. So I think it might have reflected a little bit in the in the book. So was there one more? Somebody had a hand up. All right. Well, thank you. I think we probably should cut it, shut it down and get a little, come up and talk to me and I'll sign your book and um, I'll tell you the, some other little bit of truth that I, you know, have. So thank you. That's all for tonight's Author on Tour. I'm Darren Foden. We have been podcasting live from the Tattered Cover Bookstore in Denver, Colorado. Stay pod-tuned in the coming weeks as we podcast Authors on Tour.